You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. Mother's intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. You got us up to check it out. Human. Unknown. Something has attached itself to him. We have to get him to the infirmary right away. What the hell is that? Oh, we gotta get it off him. Got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. Gotta be a way of killing it. You still don't understand what you're doing, Mr. Perfect. everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón and today we are going to look at a making of book, which is one in a series of making of books by the late Jonathan Rinsler for the making of Alien, the original Ridley Scott Alien film. You guys heard me do these before. These are incredible books, a wealth of information. We're going to try to dig as deep as possible into some of the things that we never knew before. But as I will mention during the podcast, reading these books is a commitment. Think of it as a college course that you're taking, you know, in the making of a specific film. After that, we're going to jump to posters of the month with a very appropriately titled Alien poster. The classic Alien poster, the same poster that will be referred to from the film that we're going to be talking about. A very different kind of poster, not my particular favorite style of poster making, but nonetheless, a classic, uh, you know, when you see that picture, that's the movie that you associated with, you know, the, the particular graphics that were used and images that were used. It is very, very iconic. And then we jump to Conan, Conan the Barbarian, but not the one sheet film release poster, because we've talked about that one in the past, I believe, but no, we're going to talk about the teaser poster, the poster that was apparently released 
years earlier in Europe to kind of get people, you know, all excited about the fact that this movie was going to be going into production and the particular artists that they chose, you know, to represent this poster. It's very, very deep story into the artist Frank Frenzetta. So let's get started with the making of Alien. Matu, Mirada, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. All right, today we're going to start with The Making of Alien, the Jonathan Rinsler book. This is my third, fourth, fifth, sixth, <laughs> possibly sixth Jonathan Rinsler book that I've read as far as making of books go. First, there were the first three Star Wars. Then there was the making of Indiana Jones films. And then there was the making of Planet of the Apes. This is when he diverted off of Star Wars and started doing other franchises. And then the one that I just finished reading was Alien. took me a while to read this book. This book's been around for a while. But I wanted to take a little break because I did read the making of Planet of the Apes, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, or maybe a little longer than that. And these are big, big books. Not only are they coffee table-sized books... But as I've explained in the past, there's a commitment <laughs> when you decide to tackle a book like this. It's a big book. It goes through because it follows a certain formula, uh, a certain template, if you will. It follows everything from the development, the super early development of the story, all the way through getting the story sold to the studio, all the way through the pre-production work, the production, the post-production, the release, the after effect, you know, it goes re it's very, very thorough. Obviously, the meat and potatoes of it is usually in the writing and production sections. But I also wanted to kind of kind of cleanse the palate a little bit because, you know, I, I read a lot of making of books and they're not all necessarily this thorough. I've been reading some other ones that are much, much thinner. You know, it depends on what people put out. And the problem with a book like this is that you want everything to be like a book like this. One of the original complaints I had about the book, especially the first three films, the first Star Wars films, is that what you're getting really is a, a certain point of view. For Star Wars, it was very specifically a Lucasfilm point of view. You were presented the story of Star Wars by Lucasfilm, by Lucas, plain and simple. Uh, there were many other opinions that you could find on the internet, and I did find. And even books that go onto other areas uh, that seem to highlight other things that Lucasfilm seems to kind of play down a little bit. But that's... The point of view. I mean, everything has a point of view. Everything has its own objective opinion. And the original Star Wars books, making of books that Rindler put out, were very specifically Lucasfilm's version of the story, of the history. And 
in a way, you know, they have the right because they're telling their own story. So you do want to hear it from the horse's mouth in a way. But there's going to be little tidbits that are going to be missed. So now when he transitions over to non-Star Wars properties, the question becomes, who's really, you know, pulling the reins here? Is he being the determining factor in, in what gets told and what does not get told? You know, the publisher of the book? Is it the editor of the book? Who is it? Granted, you know, with Star Wars, you're dealing with 20th Century Fox. Alien was a 20th Century Fox film. But I don't know if they really had anything to do with the making of the book as far as deciding its content, whether to delete or to add something. So it's a little tough. It's a little tougher to tell, you know, who's right and who's wrong. The book borrows extensively from other sources. It is full of first-hand interviews that Ritzler was able to do. But there are tons of other materials that information is coming from, specifically with people that are no longer around at the time when he was putting this book together. Now, as we all know, Jonathan Ritzler died last year, which you know, left a, a big gap in, in, in the world of these making of books, as far as I'm concerned, because it was very reassuring and it's very comforting also to know that there's another one coming, there's another book coming, and that sort of thing. And I do own one more. I own The Making of Aliens, which he did after this one. But I also know, because it was mentioned on previous books and on some online interviews, that he was working on a making of The Shining. And as far as I can tell, he had completed that book with, with a partner, I think, a while back. And now it's just sitting somewhere waiting to be published, I guess. And we'll see if it ever sees the light of day. I hope it does, because that would be another great peak, especially with somebody like Kubrick. Oh, my God. Obviously, he would have had to uh, done a lot of the, uh, the research on his own and interviewed you know, secondary people and that kind of stuff. But that would, that would be a great book. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. With Alien, you know, we don't have that much information in terms of when you compare it to Star Wars. Because Alien was a one-off kind of film until the sequels came. But because the sequels were done by so many different people, the Alien franchise doesn't have too much of a consistent, cohesive feel to it. You know, a lot of it, you do get the impression that it is the vision of the director that you're seeing, uh, the hired hand, which is one of the criticisms that Star Wars used to get, especially with the prequels, is that because it was always Lucas, he always got the same thing over and over and over again, and nobody was kind of reining him in. You know, when you had Irvin Kirshner, at least you had a little different kind of view into the film. But when you got Return of the Jedi... Even though there was another director, the information out there was that Lucas was very, very on set, you know, on in control of everything. I'm not going to go as far as to say that he was a that Marquand was a ghost director, but Lucas played a heavier role, I believe, in Return of the Jedi than he did in Empire Strikes Back. Whether that's good or bad, that's up to you to decide because all we have is the finished product. But with a film like Alien. You know, not until so many years later, when Ridley Scott returns to the franchise and produces and directs Prometheus and Covenant, you know, do we get him coming kind of back to this world? Now, while I was reading the book, 
at first at least, in the sections having to do with the writing of the story, I started to get confused and I'm like, oh my God, I think I read this before. I'm like, did I just, did I, am I, am I rereading the same book again? You know, did I, did I forget to kind of put it away in the already read <laughs> bookcase as opposed to the to be read bookcase? And the reason I was a little confused is because a while back, I had purchased something called the Alien Vault, which was put out in 2011. And it was uh, described here as if you look at the uh, front page of the book, and it's a book that comes inside a slipcase. And on the slipcase, it says Alien Vault, the definitive story of the making of the film by Ian Nathan. Yeah, this was a great little book. And I'm saying little book because this is a time where, and I don't know if they stopped making these anymore, but they used to make these vault books. And I think Star Wars might have been the first one, the Sand Sweet one. Well, it was this huge coffee table sized book that fit inside a slipcase. And then when you open the book, certain pages would have little envelopes and little slip things where you could slip out uh, a poster or, or some additional stickers or, or little things like that. And this is what this book is. It's a book that goes through the making of the film. And in certain pages, you can pull out storyboards, posters, you know, that kind of stuff. Except that the size of this book <laughs> is no longer the coffee table size book. This this book is more like a, a traditional book size. I don't know if you can call this even traditional. Uh, it's kind of squarish. I would say about eight inches by nine inches. So it's kind of like an in-between size. It's not exactly textbook size, if you think of school textbooks. And it's definitely not paperback. It's somewhere in the middle of that, which I have seen other books. I think there was a Battlestar Galactica book kind of like this, too. It was a smaller size, vault kind of book. But anyway, I started to remember the, you know, the, that what I was remembering <laughs> was basically this other book that I had read, geez, 10 years ago or almost 12 years ago. This particular Rinsler book came out in 2019, but I haven't touched it. <laughs> since I would say the end of 2021. It took me about, I don't know, three to four weeks to read this book. And like I said, these books are a commitment. It's almost like you're going to take a class in the making of a movie. Uh, you're taking a trip. You're committing yourself to spending a lot of time with a lot of detailed information in the process of the making of this film. And I mean, it's difficult to review it because I, I have not had a bad one yet. So far, these are all excellent books and I strongly recommend this book. And I cannot go page by page because then it would take about 16 hours, you know, to really tell you what's so cool about it. But in spite of that, I was able to jot down uh, some information. And like I said before, I, I kind of remember a little of this in the past, you know, from the previous book. But one of the main things that I remember, especially in this book, is the detail information having to do with the writing credits of this story of this film. And it's funny because I, I, I remember seeing all these names in the posters that I used to have. I used to have the Aliens poster. And there were certain names that... I've never understood exactly who these people were. You know, James Cameron was James Cameron. He was like the next George Lucas as far as I was concerned. He was, you know, Spielberg, Lucas, you know, size individual. And then there were all these other names that I'm like, who the hell are these people? I mean, yeah, they're producers. Okay, I guess they do a little of this, a little of that. And with Aliens, I remember that Cameron had a big 
part, if not all, in the writing of that film. Uh, however, because it's all based on Alien, they still have all the names of the original people that were involved in the creation of the story. But when you deal with this first story, the original people that thought up the story were a combination of Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusset. And out of the two, Dan O'Bannon had a little more street cred, if you will, in terms of he had just come off Dark Star with John Carpenter. And even though that was a collaborative effort, I think he was feeling like he was kind of being downplayed. He was being kind of overshadowed by the huge success that eventually Carpenter got. His friend Ronald Shusset, they got together and started writing this film. But Shusset was more of a producer individual. He was more of a guy with connections. You know, O'Bannon was more of the creative individual and Shusset was more of the let's get it done. This is how we do it in Hollywood kind of guy. So between the two, they are able to pitch this in many different manners. And they end up with this partnership where Fox is willing to invest some money in it. But they bring in Walter Hill, David Geiler, and Gordon Carroll. Walter Hill is a, was and is, I guess, you could kind of say if you remember him, a prominent director of the time and a writer, writer-director. He's done a ton of movies, including The Warriors. And, you know, he, Walter Hill is a, was a very well-known name in the 70s and 80s. But one of the things that this book chronicles really well, it is the, the fights between <laughs> O'Bannon and Hill. And some of the other players of these producers that is part of, I guess it's called the Brandywine Company, which is the combination of these three writer-producers. To the point where, with Fox, the, the contract that they sign for Dan O'Bannon is, okay, he's got the, the first screenplay, you know, the first draft of the screenplay. And then they're going to pass it up to these other guys to polish the draft and keep polishing and polishing and polishing it. But with O'Bannon, they're also going to give him a credit of special effects director or supervisor or something like that because he wants to kind of be involved in that. He just didn't want to be the writer who writes it and then doesn't see a piece of it. He wanted to be involved in the day-to-day production of the film. And in the book, you get to see that, how he just bangs into so many doors and knocks heads with just about everybody because they kind of blow him off a little bit, little by little different people, which is something that I guess these days you wouldn't have because you wouldn't give that person that much leeway. You either hiring to do one thing or you hiring to do the other thing. You don't kind of let him hang out and be like a, an advisor, you know, because this has happened before where writers, you know, write something and then when you hand it over to the director the director completely changes everything or the producers the studio they completely change everything and that forms a really bad relationship between the writer and and everybody else because then they're like you know well they always mess up my work and that kind of thing and that's seemed to be a general sentiment that you get out of this you know with o'bannon of how he felt slighted however when it came to the end of trying to figure out credits 
There were certain times in the production where he was being even removed from the screenwriting credit of the film, where he had to go and fight an arbitration to present his case that he should be the sole screenwriter. And at the end, he did get that credit. He got the screenwriting credit. The story went to O'Bannon and Chusset, but the writing credit for the script went to O'Bannon, which made the other three uh, very upset, especially uh, Walter Hill. In my opinion, uh, it's a tough one because Walter Hill and, and his other two partners, they did chime in quite a bit and they did made a lot of alterations to the script. But there are certain formulas, there are certain things that they have to look at page by page, word by word. And if the decision was made that O'Bannon did most of it, then he did most of it. There it is. I'm sure Fox and Hill wanted to kind of downplay O'Bannon as much as possible, but I'm glad that he basically got his way at the end because if that's what he did, that's what he did. If those are the rules of the time, the amount of work that that person does, then that's what he got. I don't know if those rules still exist, but... I'm happy with it as far as I'm concerned. And some of the, again, and some of these names will show up time and time again on future sequels to this film. So it's not like anybody got completely shut out of anything, more or less. In the script, one unusual early development, which and there are storyboards for this, is that when everybody wakes up from their hypersleep chambers, everybody's supposed to be nude. And they were concerned that if you have full nudity, frontal nudity, especially male nudity, you would get slapped with an X rating. So little by little, they had to kind of cut things back to the point where they gave everybody like a bottom, like an underwear kind of thing to wear. But the women, if you look very carefully, (laughs) instead of giving them a shirt to wear, and I'm talking about the opening sequence, not the end sequence, In the opening sequence, they put a piece of tape across their chest just to hide the nipple area. In the opening sequence, it's mainly men that you see. But over to the right, if you look at, I think it's Veronica Cartwright, you could see that she does have this white stripe going across her chest. And and it's something I never noticed before. Because they kind of hit her in the back, you don't see Sigourney Weaver. Because the you know you're only seeing through the front, and you got like three or four men up front, uh, and then in the back you got uh, Cartwright, and and Weaver is completely blocked out, completely blocked out, you know, in the back. But that's something I remember that in the script uh, they were very prominent about that everybody should be waking up fully naked, and you kind of figure well, I guess that makes sense because it's it's a very medical device, you know, this this cryogenic chamber that you're in. You know, clothes would just make things a little more unhygienic, you would imagine, or something, you know. But that's something to to, to look out for. The script also has a lot of things that I don't notice until later, until recently. In other words, there was a certain way that they were writing, and and this might have been Walter Hill, because this might have been part of his additions to the script, I'm not entirely sure. But the little chit-chat that people are having across the dining room table in the mess... And they're talking about stupid stuff that makes no sense, that doesn't really matter to anything. But there was a reference that, that Weaver makes, Ripley, uh, to the cornbread. Oh, the cornbread this and cornbread that. And 
it, it makes me smile when I hear it now or when I read it now because in Aliens there is a mention of cornbread when they're you know when when all the soldiers are are having their their meal. So I think these were deliberate callbacks that either Cameron or, or somebody else uh, was were making to this film, you know, by bringing in these kind of things. And it happens a, a number of times. One of the things that we will see that I've that I've noticed a long time ago, and, and you kind of see it here in the book because they talk about the production of all of these graphics that they had to make. Let's remember, this is the late 70s. We don't have flat screen technology yet. We barely have computer technology in terms of modern computer technology, but even then, they still didn't have any kind of not only flat screen television monitors, but computer monitors. So everything is being done by small television sets. And the television sets, because they're supposed to be computers, they're supposed to be being fed computer data. But obviously, you don't have that technology yet. You know, CGI computer and anim, you know animation, that sort of thing, doesn't exist yet in the manner that you would that you would be able to do it today. So what they would do is they would they would come up with something, whether it's animation or something or 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 whatever, television, anything, and then they would film it and then they would play it back via a recorder, a three quarter inch recorder or a Betamax or something. One of the things I noticed again a, a long time ago is that. There are certain computer display sequences that I see again that Scott used for Blade Runner. Now, you could say, yeah, because, you know, he was just repurposing, you know, background information, you know, to be able to use for another film. True. However, later, way later, 20 years later, 30 years later, I don't know, when he started dabbling in some of the director cuts and and final cuts and all these different cuts in some of that background material the Tyrell company showing up in a later version of Alien that he has been able to kind of tie those two universes together unofficially if you will without making a big stink about it but back then I believe that was not the intent I think back then the intent was he was just trying to save money and re repurpose some of these graphics to be used and again the one that i keep thinking about is one that has a red thing that says purge in alien it shows up inside one of the spinners in blade runner i believe there was a scene in the movie which was improvised by em holmes who plays ash where he's about to meet a couple of people and right before he gets to them he starts to kind of run in place to kind of it's almost like he's warming himself up which is weird it makes him look weird but there are also scenes where they're trying to make him more human remember with ash they're purposely hiding the fact that he's a robot until the end and they're throwing these unusual moments which could be considered hints that something's wrong with this guy oh no he's just trying to warm himself up but no, there's something wrong with him. And and that is one of the things that the actor thought on his own to do of, of something unusual that Ash is going to do to kind of reset himself, to kind of kind of give himself a jolt. But as a human, you could say, yeah, it's just to warm up. You're just kind of giving yourself a fast, you know, adrenaline rush almost. Uh, but on the other hand, there are scenes where they're purposely showing you him doing very human things. So that I think it's supposed to throw you off the scent. 
It's the it's the reverse red herring, if you will. And by that I mean he's holding a cup and he's drinking. He's he makes you know he 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 makes sure he takes the time because he wants to take a sip out of his drink. Now, granted, what he's drinking to me looks like milk because it's white, which again it's kind of like oh wow, he's drinking milk because he's all full of this white fluid inside of him. But it's it, it again it's these little tiny little things that that are so interesting. Scott talks about how the sunrise in LV426, well, right now in, in this particular case, we don't even have a name for it, but the sunrise, he said that he just did it by having a light aimed at the camera, you know, off in the background. Uh, instead of having to create in some kind of an optical effect or some kind of special effect, the landscape was dusty and smoky enough that a light placed really far away aimed at the camera would be enough to create the look of the sun, you know, going through a very harsh environment. And it works perfectly. Because I, I what I did is I watched the movie after I finished reading the book. I watched the movie again. And I started picking out all these little things that I was, you know, uh, reading in the book. Oh, that's that thing they took. Oh, and they talked about that. You know, that kind of thing. And another thing that I noticed when I was watching the film, knowing how they did the effect for real... There are scenes when they are looking at things and, and they might be fast-forwarding or reversing images on purpose because they're, they're watching like a video feed or a video recording, let's say. Got it. That makes sense. And again, because of the technology back then, when you freeze an image with videotape, you end up with this bar. You get this bar. You don't get, this, you don't get the clean pauses that you do nowadays on a computer screen with nonlinear Images. A nonlinear image is practically a perfect still. Solid, no interference of any shape or form. But back then, if you guys are my age and you remember VCRs and that's, uh, you know, recording devices, uh, even the, you know, they're using three quarter inch video, I believe, again. And I remember using three quarter inch video. When you pause those suckers, you got that uh, slightly jarring motion sometimes and the line that kind of showed you you know, one frame to the other frame, that kind of stuff. There are scenes in the movie, or there was at least a scene where you get to, where you see that, fine, that, that makes perfect sense. But I did notice that there was another scene in the movie where I think Ash is uh, watching something or he's walking in the lab and there's an image on the wall that is frozen, but frozen by it being slightly jarring and with the bar going through it which to me looked like it was just a mistake because it looked as if somebody forgot to hit play on these fake computer graphics. You know, in this particular monitor, somebody just forgot to hit the play button when they said action. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not sure. One change in the script, my God, there were so many changes in the script, but one major change in the script uh, had to do with the death of Brett. In the movie, Brett is killed by himself. And it is implied that Parker and Lambert found the remains, I guess, or, 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 or the scene where he was killed. And I don't even know if he was necessarily there on the ground when they found them. They don't even hint of that. The thing is that when they shot that scene, apparently Parker and Lambert witness the attack. Uh, they're not with him the entire time, but I guess at some point they catch up to him as he's being attacked. And there's nothing they can do, or they, they get there too late and the creature disappears. Because when we do return to that scene, 
of them talking to Ripley about it. They're very specific that he's talking about the size of how big it was and that it grabbed them up or something like that. And it's like, but wait a minute, that almost implies that he saw him and that it's because he did. So that is something that was in a way removed from the editing, but kept slightly referencing to it, you know, in a way that you're like, wait a minute, what did that really, ha-? you know, did they see it or did not see it? Or are they just stipulating, you know, and I think that's how it comes off of. It comes off as if they're stipulating, but in reality, the footage that they're using is from them having seen him, you know, a few minutes before. The book also uh, talks at a certain point about how when they were doing all those scenes of Dallas running through the air ducts, uh, how they didn't account for lighting because those air ducts are so tiny that they really couldn't rig up any normal lights. Um, and I think they just couldn't put a light on the camera because there was just too much stuff. So instead, uh, Ridley Scott decided that he was going to light Tom Skerritt by two things. A flashlight that Tom Skerritt's holding every now and then hitting his face and the flamethrower on its, you know, standby mode with just a flame on the side. And when you look at the scene, you're like, wow, that actually works really well, you know, that they can get so much light out of just those two units. And I guess if you put a light on the camera, it's going to look like you're just pointing a spotlight at the ca- at, at the individual in front of you from really close by, like a almost like a TV interview looking thing. But those two other items that he's holding, as far as I'm concerned, work perfectly, you know, to create the mood and to sufficiently light the, the actor. Another... See, not so much a sequence, but a number of sequences where Lambert kind of starts to lose it and she kind of gets hysterical. It's funny because, once again, watching that reminds me so much of Aliens and the Hudson character, which, again, he might have been doing a callback to this film by having a character react in that manner, too. Hudson is the most likely, and he does, lose his composure, you know, many, many times just like Lambert does in this film. Once the film was done shooting principal photography, they moved on to special effects. And again, special effects was something that it was started a certain way, and then Scott wanted to become more involved in it, and it changed so much once he started getting involved with it. So at the same time as he's overseeing the special effects, he's also editing the film with his editor. And there's a lot of this back and forth where... He redesigns the Nostromo, the, the the actual cargo, the stuff they're hauling. He he redesigns that. He takes pieces, puts them on different places. Completely has the Nostromo repainted. At one point, the Nostromo was kind of like yellow, and then they went back to this, you know, light grayish kind of whitish color. And one of the things that he mentioned a lot is that he wasn't looking for Star Wars. Action. In other words, he was looking more for 2001. So that's why a lot of the shots you see of the ship, they're very still, very slow moving. You know, they try to give you the sense of scale. And they weren't going to go all Kubrick with the no sound thing. Again, in space, no one can hear you scream, except if you're making a movie and you need sounds. So in space... That was one of the things I remember, I think he mentioned that he wasn't crazy about, but he knew he had to have it, and that is, he needed to put some sound in there. You get the picture that, because this was his second film, 
and his first American film by a big American studio, he was compromising quite a bit. He got to the point where they practically had to tear him away from the set. You know, he pushed as hard as he could possibly push to get the shots he wanted and all that stuff. There's a whole section with H.E. Giger that goes through the book in terms of his involvement, too, about how he, in a way similar to O'Bannon, where because he wasn't used to making films, this was the first time he made a film, they kind of didn't want him there. The producers want to always deal with, especially the studio, with people who are into filmmaking and know the rules of filmmaking. But when you bring in an artist, there's the potential danger that the artist is going to go all artsy on you <laughs> and demand certain things. And he did. He he wanted things done a certain way. And there was this back and forth and back and forth between him and other artists that were hired by the studio and the producers and Scott and O'Bannon. And there was this tug of this. this sometimes it was like a four or five way tug of war for creatively how things should look like. And while the movie was being shot... Geiger also was working on a documentary, <laughs> which is on YouTube, which is really interesting. The, the fact that it's, it exists, it's out there, of him, you know, the making of the movie through his eyes. And at the same time, he was also working on a book where he could put all the art that he made for the movie in book form. And I have that book. It's a very good book because his art is, wow, it is it is just crazy out there, and it is one of the things that really helped to sell this story and to, you know, kind of move it from a B-level movie in which how it was being treated at first to kind of an A-level tentpole kind of movie for the studio. What was being promised was a lot higher than what originally was envisioned, and I believe they succeeded as far as I'm concerned. The, the movie didn't become Star Wars-level financial or popular but it really exceeded the expectations that fox had and it made a chunk of money for most of those people not all of the creatives were happy with the you know end result and it then spawned a franchise which to this day it continues to go i mean we have now a television show apparently that's in the works having to do with this you know that scott apparently is is involved with so it's just fantastic. Another thing about the book, this is what's going to springboard us into the second part of the show today, and that is the poster making. The book gives us many samples of the posters, the conceptual posters and all that stuff that was used, the international posters. But one thing I noticed with a lot of these books, and it's not just this book, I've seen it happening on other books, is that they just don't have enough information about it. So they kind of delegate the poster information to the sidebars of the pages. So for example, you'll see pictures of posters, but the majority of the text that's being written, you know, the body of the page, they're talking about something else. They're talking about the, the distribution of the film, the money it's making in different theaters and this and that. But then in the, in the sides of the page, I forget what the name of the the technical name for those white sides, those borders, where they have the little inserted text that tells you what the photo on top of it is about. That's how they tell you a lot of the information having to do with the posters. And that's something that's a little disappointing for me because I'm a big poster person. And it's very hard to get 
a lot of information on the design and the creation and the and the the different steps that a poster took to become what it became, you know, in its final process. And this is one of them, where they show you the final poster, but the information about how the, that poster got to that point is just not, it's either not there or not enough of it. Uh, so that is another criticism I would say about this and, and many of these types of books, is that they relegate the poster design off to the side. Almost, It's almost like the toy making thing. Oh yeah, and by the way, and they made some toys too. <laughs> you know, it's one of those kind of things. But even toys, I think they talked about them, you know, a little more thoroughly than the poster design. But yeah, stay tuned because we are going to talk about the Alien poster next. But this book, just get it. Go and get it. I know it's probably cheaper than it was when it first came out. These books usually drop in price. There, I mean, you, you cannot go wrong if you are into films the way I am, all those making of type of things. Because you know what happens with me is like once I finish reading the book, it's like, I want more. I need more. I need more. So then you go to YouTube and start looking for any making of featurettes or documentaries and then you go to uh the streaming services and you find i i found like there's at least one or two different he giger documentaries out there about his work and his involvement it's just insane the amount of stuff that's out there then the dvds the different versions of dvds the anniversary versions and the the the, the, the director's cuts and blah 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 and the quadrology and there's so many other Media. There's so much more media out there that will give you even more information that that backs up. It's good because it backs up what you're learning in this book. Usually, supplemental material doesn't do justice. The only time I remember supplemental material being really, really good is when the early days of Laserdiscs uh, were coming, where you could watch the movie... And then you could spend hours and hours with all this supplemental material on these bonus discs that came with the lasers. Man, th those were the good old days. <laughs> but I think now, they, like I said, they have made so many different documentaries that there's a lot. I mean, you could, you could have a college course on the making of this film between the book and all the media that exists out there. So... A very strong recommend, as far as I'm concerned, regarding The Making of Alien by Jonathan Rinsler. You can collect them all! You are a toy! Batteries not included. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the Six Million Dollar Man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. All right, for our first poster of Posters of the Month, we are going to begin with Alien. Appropriately enough, we just mentioned we were just talking about the making of Alien. And I did mention about the lack of information directly from the book. I mean, there is some information, don't get me wrong. But just like you, most other posters, I have to go online and dig around a little deeper for information having to do with the creation of this poster. The poster that I'm talking about is the 
more or less all black poster with the word alien on top. You have an egg in the middle that seems to be cracking in some kind of a yellow green misty goo is coming out of there. Tagline says, in space, no one can hear you scream. Below it, you see a some kind of a floor or a grid looking surface with a green uh, horizon sort of coming up. And then below, extremely below, I wouldn't even say a quarter, but maybe a fifth or even a sixth <laughs> space-wise, you have all the credits of all the uh, participants of the film. This is a tricky one because... This is a a poster that was done more or less by an agency. Even though we do have the name of the actual artist who did it. His name is Philip Gipps. He was the art director for a company that he worked with, Steve Frankfurt. Now, sometimes when you go online, and if you try to research this particular poster, you're going to see Frankfurt's name come up quite a bit. And it is possible because... Frankfurt more or less ran the agency, and Gip was more or less the talent. And this is something that happens time and time again, where the agency will kind of take the credit indirectly for the artist, unless you kind of challenge them on, okay, but who actually drew this, or who actually designed it? This wasn't a drawing, first of all. This was a kind of like an airbrush selection of early photoshopping if you will where you cut and paste certain images put them together Uh, this isn't what i would call my favorite kind of traditional poster making technique this is a little more even though it is the the late 70s it is a more modern approach to where poster making is going it's kind of heading in that direction already in 1979 ridley scott in one of his video interviews from one of the many, many makings of describes how the promotion of the film went in kind of two directions. For the trailer, they went to R. Greenberg Associates, which is a company that I'm actually familiar with, believe it or not, because of poster making out of all things in the world. The only reason I'm familiar with R. Greenberg Associates is because they were the ones who did the special effects for the movie Predator. And I remember I had the poster for Predator, and I would always look at that. It's at Art Greenberg Associates. It's like, wow, that's that's really interesting. Uh, but apparently they also did the titles uh, here. And that's one of their specialties, was the, the creating titles, creating opening sequences, creating trailers with very uh, heavy, heavy graphical information on them. You know, the name of the movie, starring so-and-so, you know, that kind of stuff. But they kind of went in that direction. They were going to handle the trailer part of it. And then for the media, you know, for the ads, for the ad campaign and all that stuff, it fell on Frankfurt and Gibbs. However, as I mentioned before, the actual person that was more directly involved in the poster design was Gibbs. Not only was he more involved in the design of the poster and deciding to use the egg and to use these different items, you know, and the layout of the poster and the manner of which you have the total void black, the egg, and the weird ground. His wife actually is the one credited with coming up with the tagline, in space no one can hear you scream. So, yeah, it's it's weird when you when you really dig dig into how something is created that it's easier to say so-and-so created it, it's his company. Yeah, but 
there were people who actually were behind that. So it does become a little more difficult. And it's nothing new. When you're dealing with non-artists in terms of painters, sketch people, that kind of thing, when you're dealing with more of a modern thing, it always seems to fall usually more under the banner of a company than the individual person. Anyway, one of the biggest questions with this poster is that, yes, it's a super iconic poster, but the more you look at it, the more you're like, but wait a minute, things are not exactly how they are in the movie in the poster. And by that I mean, let's start with the egg itself. Okay, the egg is not the egg from the movie. According to the making of book, they do mention that they were considering or even tried using it, but it just didn't work well. The color didn't work well, the brightness, the contrast, all that stuff just didn't work well with this particular design. Now, there were tons of designs in the book, you see pictures of a lot of different attempts at designing, and some of them were done by some major, you know, poster people of the time, different concepts. And for whatever reason, they kept coming back to the egg concept. And there is a picture of one that looks kind of like this, but it's not this. But you, it kind of looks like it's heading in that direction. It's heading in the direction of a far away kind of egg with some kind of a floor or, or a ground surface area. This one, like I said, it has an egg that is not exactly that egg. It is more like a, like a chicken egg, if you think about it. It is the shape of a chicken egg. It seems to be suspended in midair. But it also has this, this kind of a bumpy, lumpy texture to it. Which doesn't make sense. <laughs> Obviously, the crack and the 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 green, yellowy, oozy, misty stuff coming out of it is what creates the the tension of the. Oh, what the hell is this? This is this isn't just a chicken egg. This is something weird coming out of it. So it does create that tension. The ground surface area also gives you that bizarre look. It's like a checkerboard pattern with these overlapping rod grids that are completely organic they're not very mechanical if you will mathematical i don't know however if you do look at the other comp of this poster which i'm going to assume it was made by the same company because unfortunately like i said the book doesn't go into that much detail as to who made all these you know eight different comps this one looks so much like the one that I think preceded it, that in the earlier version, it had the the ground, the surface area, being kind of like the inside of the spaceship, the derelict. You have all of that biomechanical looking surfaces, very, very obvious what it is. Here, it looks like they wanted to keep the pattern or the shape, but they didn't want to specifically show you what you saw in the movie. Now, there's multiple reasons for this. Sometimes it's because you don't have the information, so you don't have the reference material. But I don't think that's true. I think the reference material was already out there. I think in this particular case is because they didn't want to spoil the things in the movie. All of this art that they were creating, all of this Giger stuff, the egg, the surfaces, the alien, obviously, is stuff that I think they wanted to keep as a surprise. The other thing is this. This particular egg that you see in this poster goes very much hand-in-hand hand with the egg that they use in the trailer. Now, in the trailer, and I'm talking about the teaser trailer. The teaser trailer has, there's no words, it's just sound effects and some music, 
and a very suspenseful, anxiety-ridden images, which you do have a, a very intense images of the film, but you also have what appears to be this landscape that you're kind of hovering over, and it's very like cracked, dry, very spacey, like you're in some kind of planet. Very, very, um, I would say even moon-like. And then you see an egg, but you don't know it's an egg at first. At first, because of the, you're so close up on it, and you're at the curve of the egg itself, it almost looks like you're you're hovering over the moon. If it's some kind of space shot of the moon, because the lumps on the egg and the little craters looks just like the surface of the moon. But as you start to pull out, you start to get the shape of the egg, and then the egg on the surface of the planet. And then the crack on the egg and stuff coming out of it. Again, even in the trailer, they're not giving you the actual shots, at least with this footage that was shot for the trailer. Again, it's a little contradictory, I think, because of the fact that you're trying to keep the images away from the audience, but then the next couple of shots are actual shots from the film. So it could have been part of the publicity, the the manner in which the publicity worked back then which was that first you tease people with this poster. And, you know, people are like, what the hell does that mean? Is something about an egg and something about a hatching out of an egg, something scary coming from an egg? Okay, we kind of get that. And then you get the trailer, teaser trailer, where you do see a live version of this poster with the, you know, the egg, the planet unveils to be the egg, the egg cracks on the surface of the planet, and they pepper it with actual shots of the film. So you got, you know, your secondary stage of the promotion of the film. So I think that's kind of where we were going with this poster. That is why they didn't use the actual images. I think it was done deliberately because they wanted to unveil, you know, the stages you know, of the surprise of the film by not giving it away in the poster. Now, this is the poster. This is one of those things what we talked about in the past, that in future movies, they can kind of get away from it. They can kind of show you more, theoretically, because the cat's out of the bag. The surprise has already been shown to people. So this is the first time they can get away with being very, very vague and very mysterious about it. My copy of this poster is a reproduction. I never owned this when I first saw the film. And as I mentioned a long time ago, I don't think, uh, I think I I only saw this film on video uh, the first time because uh, I had seen a clip of this film in um, a documentary on HBO in the early 80s called Terror in the Isles, which they talk about horror films. And this was one of the clips of that movie, the obviously the chestbuster scene. So... Yeah, this is such an interesting example of what happens sometimes with these posters where the artists themselves get kind of lost in the shuffle and the above board, you know, the the top level people are the ones that kind of end up taking credit for it for for a very long time uh, until you start to dig and dig and dig and dig and try to figure out, you know, where did this come from? How does this come about there was some mention of of them uh taking uh, you know the shape of an egg and using clay to kind of build the little bumps and, and for all we know this might have been the same egg that was then used for the trailer for the teaser trailer so it could have been the same it could have been they could have been working hand hand in hand 
Uh, the other thing they do mention here is the fact that the font that they use originally for the word alien they were considering using a, a Giger alien but again the Giger fonts that he had created were very much in the vein of the look of the creature so it's possible that they also didn't want to again give away too much by having the letters already hint at what this creature is going to look like or what the environment's going to look like so instead they went for this very basic very plain very cold if you will specific font um and what scott theorized and he said okay i like this font let's use this font not only you know for the for this promotional material but i want to use this font in the opening of the film the opening of the film the way that the font is revealed which is also done in the trailer teaser trailer is that you see the letters one section at a time unveiling themselves a little bit until you have the full title he liked that what they did on the teaser he liked it so he also used it you know on the um opening of the film itself his point of view was and again this wasn't his idea but he kind of envisions it as let's make it so that the the font and the simplicity and the elegance of the font is also indicative of the alien itself in terms of we don't know what their society is like we don't know how smart they are this whole movie is them trying to kill each other Nobody really takes the time to figure out, are they advanced? Are they smart? Are they, can they communicate? You know, that kind of stuff. So it's a weird little extra thing that he kind of threw in there. And it's the type of thing that even in the book, he explains that he would have liked to explore in a future film, maybe in a sequel or something. Not only the alien themselves, but the space jockey and the technology that created them and who, how they wound up there, which are themes that he will eventually explore 30 years later with Prometheus and Covenant. This uh, poster, again, it is a classic, no matter how you slice it. I would say it's probably the best of all the posters of the franchise. Even Aliens, I'm telling you right now. Even Aliens, I think it is it's a better poster than the Aliens poster. And the fact that the materials were used for the teaser trailer that are on this posters, it's a bonus amount of information. And I do remember back when I used to uh, visit Hollywood Studios at uh, Disney and they had the great movie ride, the teaser trailer for Alien was one of those rotating trailers that was in the main room as you waited to get into the ride. And... The sound and the look and all that stuff that I'm watching now that's on this poster was right there on the big giant screen. Our second poster of the month is the teaser poster for Conan the Barbarian. This is a poster that is somewhat rare, if you will, because it was distributed primarily overseas. I believe it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Dino de Laurentiis was promoting the beginning of the production, I think, of Conan. And at the time, he had formed an agreement, I guess, or talked Frank Franzetta into letting him use one of his original Conan paintings in order to promote the film. Now, he was trying to get him to do 
more, I believe, not only for the film itself, uh, but possibly even the actual poster. But Frank Franzetta was a little bit of a difficult person (laughs) to deal with when it came to creating posters. This particular image that I'm looking at right now, it's a portrait of Conan by Franzetta from the 60s, from 1965, I believe, that was actually used for the cover of a Conan book called Conan the Adventurer by Robert E. Howard. It is said that, I've heard a few interviews, that once Franzetta got involved in the Conan novels, you know, when he started creating all this art for Conan, is when the Conan novels started really, really taking off. This particular novel came out in 1966, but I believe he, he had finished the art by 65 already. And you have here basically Conan with a sword pointing down towards a pile of what could be the aftermath of some battle. You see skulls, you see what could be dead individuals, swords and axes, but you also see a very scantily clad woman kind of hanging on to one of his legs. Now, this is very typical Franzetta. To do Franzetta justice, you have to do an entire show on just Franzetta. Franzetta was a comic book artist through the 40s and 50s. Later in the 60s, he started doing movie posters. A lot of them comedies, believe it or not. He did a number of official movie posters, including Clean Eastwood's The Gauntlet and a French fantasy film, animated film, called Fire and Ice. He was like a co-producer on that one, where they tried to kind of use a lot of his imagery in the film itself. There have been a number of very famous people who tried to get him to do work for him uh, with their films, and it just not work out. Stallone, actually, after his popularity with Rocky, he tried to hire Franzetta to do Paradise Alley. And according to an interview I read, Franzetta really didn't want to do it. So he quoted him some ridiculously outrageous price and Stallone said, yeah, let's do it. But luckily for Franzetta, he later changed his mind or the studio changed their mind so he didn't have to do it. Even George Lucas tried to hire Franzetta around the time of Star Wars or prepping for Empire or something like that. And he wouldn't do it. Because one of the major sticking points for Franzetta's work is the ownership of the property. So, for example, if he does a painting, he wants to not only keep the original, but he also wants the copyrights to that painting to be able to sell it. And that is something that a lot of Hollywood people will not go along with. Just like Lucas. Lucas was all about owning all of the material. This way he can use it later on and merchandise it and whatever. Well, this is one of the big sticking points when it came to Franzetta. And one of the reasons why he was, I guess, at some point considered difficult to work with is the fact that he would insist on owning his material, which is a very rare that you have enough clout, enough pull to be able to demand and get that. Ironically enough, having to do with Lucas. If you guys think of the final poster that was used when Star Wars came out, the Tom Jung poster, 
And I think I've reviewed it before. We talked about before the specific art and the specific look of Luke and Leia and how muscular Luke is and how slightly over-sexualized Leia looks. Uh, And even in some of the comp work that led to that poster. I think you might also see a little bit of that in the Hildebrand poster. But when you really take a close look, it's kind of easy to see that there is a Frenzetta influence in the way that these characters are posed, the, the way these characters physically look. And I don't know if that is a Frenzetta to young influence or if Lucas played a part in saying, hey, listen, can you make these look a little Franzetta? <laughs> can you Franzetta these? Can you Conan these characters a little bit? Even though they look nothing like that in the film, nevertheless, they ended up using that kind of imagery a little bit. They didn't go overboard, but enough for, you know, fanboys like myself, you know, you take the magnifying glass and you're like, wait a minute, what the hell is this? Luke was never ripped, <laughs> Leia was never showing so much skin, but yeah, it's it, it again. It's that influence, and it wouldn't surprise me, you know, the fact that possibly Lucas tried to get Frenzetta maybe for the first film I, or the second film. I know he was definitely there. We've seen pictures of him pitching him, and you never know. You never know. He he might have um, you know said, all right, well, if I can't have him, then. I'm going to try to have to find somebody who can kind of mimic his style a little bit because that's what I want. He actually did, believe it or not, a Mad Magazine cover that featured Ringo Starr. And after he did that, that's what kind of had him springboard into movie posters. Again, a completely different style. Uh, a very comical style, which led to all these like screwball comedies that he did posters for. He also did some album covers, specifically heavy rock, heavy metal kind of stuff, and book covers, obviously. When he was doing comic book work, a lot of Conan, a lot of Tarzan, Flash Gordon, you name it, he hit just about all of the big ones. But Conan was his main one, I think, because he brought up this style, which is a fantasy sci-fi kind of style. Very super crazy muscular guys, super sexy, barely dressed women, which is kind of like that aesthetic of Conan, if you think about it. He did tons and tons of this. So apparently, like I said before, he tried to work with De Laurentiis, uh, but I guess uh, I'm going to assume what usually ends up not working out is the ownership Uh, being able to own the property after you're done with it. So in this particular case, he obviously kept it. He kept the ownership of all this art, but he made some kind of deal to be able to use just this one picture to promote what it was going to look like. And it's super interesting to try to figure out what would Conan the Barbarian be like if we had him participate in it, because a lot of the sketch work that was done for the movie by other artists would have most likely been replaced by Franzetta. And the movie poster itself would have been a Franzetta poster. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely love the final poster that was used. And a lot of the people involved in making Conan, even especially John Milius himself, talks about how influential the, the Franzetta paintings are when he was putting the movie together. It's a shame they couldn't get him you know, to agree to work on it, but... That is one of the pillars of the Conan mythology, is it not only the, the the written word of the stories of the adventures, you know, that were written by Howard, 
but the actual visuals that came along you know you can kind of say that in a way this was also the beginning of of the dungeons and dragons look you know that that whole fantasy sword and sorcery motif that we 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 kind of grew up with a lot of it if it wasn't directly influenced by franzetta's drawings it was the people that were drawing it were being influenced by franzetta Again, he kind of stood completely aside and turned down a lot of work because of the aspects of the uh, of the money. There's a documentary called Frank Franzetta Painting with Fire that I have not been able to get yet. It's kind of difficult to get my hands on this thing. It used to be a streamable at one point, but then, you know, it goes away and comes back here or there. So I'm still trying to chase it down. But he had this crazy, crazy success that then was followed up by some very tragic medical issues to the point where before he died i think around 2010 or something there was a thing that took place with one of his sons where he tried to more or less steal some of his artwork because remember he kept all his artwork he had tons and tons of artwork, millions of dollars worth of artwork. And the family got into a fight, basically, between all the heirs, all the sons and daughters, because this one son tried to steal stuff. And when it was all said and done, apparently they, they settled. They had some kind of settlement where they kind of divvied up everything. And once he passed, the art kind of went in different directions, like the daughter's have one chunk of the art. Some of the sons have another chunk of the art. His wife, unfortunately, passed away right before he did, about a year before he passed away. So it, it is kind of tragic the way that things kind of ended with, you know, the infighting over the rights to who gets the art and who gets to profit from the art. To this day, different camps, I believe, still hold the rights. So anytime you see any Franzetta material out there, you know, it's it's going to all these different uh, children or, or grandkids, you know, who, who still, you know, are the license holders. Uh, but my God, this guy was so prolific. And he played such a small role in the making of this poster. This poster, like I said, was, was used to, to promote that this movie was being made, you know, it had the coming soon thing, and there's different versions of it. The one I, the, the, the specific one that I have is obviously a reproduction, and it is copyright 1980. So this means that two years before Conan came out, De Laurentiis was already hyping and promoting and already had made this deal to be able to use this image just to start promoting the, the film. I don't honestly know if this ever made it all the way to the States, if there were a lot of these posters plastered here, or it was mainly an international campaign. Because like I said, I know that this particular one was presented at the Cannes Film Festival in 1980. This was also, I guess, the beginning in some shape or form of Charles Lippincott's involvement in the promotion. Because if you guys remember, Charlie Lippincott, and it's funny, we were just talking about Alien. He was also involved with the Alien promotion. So in a strange way, today we ended up uh, talking about two more properties that 
Lippincott was somewhat involved in. Granted, they're not, you know, these are R-rated properties, so it's very difficult to market, you know, as far as uh, toys and that sort of thing goes. But uh, these are two properties that he did play a, a, a considerable role in promoting. And like I said, I still absolutely love what they ended up with. You know, that iconic poster. We talked about that one before. But it's 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 almost like an alternative universe where Franzetta could have been involved even more, but wasn't. But at least we got the teaser poster out of it, which wasn't original. You know, it wasn't originally designed for the film, but at least he allowed him to use his imagery, you know, for, for especially this particular picture, which is the one that is credited with opening up the floodgates of the popularity of Conan as a as a book because of all this tidal wave of art that started coming out of Franzetta to you know to promote all these Conan novels that were coming out and the genius of him of being able to retain the imagery and the original artwork you know copyrighted to himself it's something that it's super super rare these days especially when you're dealing with studios and agencies. I mean, some of the giants themselves, the Struzans and the Castells and the Alvins, you know, some of those guys were still having problems, I remember, uh, being able to retain their original artwork. Lucas, I know for a fact, because we've done so many examples of Lucas posters, where, no, anything you do for Lucas goes to Lucas. Lucasfilm retains everything. I mean, now it's Disney, I guess, but that is one of the reasons why they weren't able to, you know, to to come up with a deal. You know, Lucas told Franzetta that, you know, he there were certain paintings he made that were part of the inspiration for Star Wars. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty of business, those two guys were more alike in terms of each of them wanted to have the, the rights to the property once the property was completed. And, and that's what kept them from working together. Ironically... He then turned around and did work for Battlestar Galactica, which I, I'm going to assume he kept the rights to that. And I do remember seeing some of those, some of that artwork, which was again very unlike what ended up being on television. Again, super buff guys, half naked women, <laughs> that kind of stuff that it doesn't really fit. But when you look at that art, you're like, whoa, something's very different here. Plus the fact that. You know, Lucas ended up suing Battlestar Galactica in such a weird, weird uh, series of events, you know, searching around certain people. Even McQuarrie ended up doing work for Battlestar Galactica. That's how crazy these things are. But in the process, we get this great poster that is based on one of the most classic paintings uh, that Franzetta has done. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We started out with The Making of Aliens by Jonathan Rensler, one of my favorite making of authors. Uh, I can't wait to eventually tackle Aliens, and hopefully, hopefully, sometime in the future, we will see that The Shining book that I believe he had already finished uh, before he passed. And if you also think about it, there might be a Force Awakens book somewhere out there. I know the book was announced. I don't know how far he actually got on producing that book, but who knows, at least I know I have one more definite book on my shelf now uh, that I can hit, which again, Aliens, that's my baby. I love that film. That film was 
wow, that film was was definitely a, a, a marker, uh, you know, for the 80s for me. You know, the, the next progression. Once I was done with Star Wars, that's what I moved on next. I moved on to Cameron. And Aliens was probably, you know, where he hit the best as far as I'm concerned. After the making of Alien, we looked at the poster for Alien. I hope you guys learned a couple of new interesting facts about it. You know, I, I appreciate the poster more. I understand the poster more. You know, there were all those things where, you know, when I would look at that poster and say, how come the egg looks different? How come the bottom looks different? How come this looks different? You know, I've never had enough time to really think about or research the possibilities of why they, those decisions were made and who were the people who were making those decisions. And hopefully we, we, we've achieved some of that today. Then we moved back to Conan. Conan is one of these underappreciated films as far as I'm concerned. We've talked about Conan in the past, that's true. But the art of Conan, I so wish someday somebody would put out a book, a big, big, you know, coffee table size book, um, talking about the art, not only that inspired Conan, but the art that was used to make the film, and, and obviously the posters and all that stuff, because it is one of these films that, because there's just not that much interest in it, you know, most likely it will never see the light of day. Uh, and it's up to us to, to kind of dig around and look at some of making of documentaries and, and, and go through some old magazines where people actually submitted, you know, allowed them to use uh, um, film art for the making of to kind of cobble together some kind of a source to be able to identify all that art. But I mean, a film like Conan, to me, oh my God, that would have been a perfect Rinsler book, you know, because of the uh, all the different interviews you could have done and all the different art that probably exists. You know, it's 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 wonderful. But at least this particular poster is one that I was not too familiar with. For me, the reason I kind of landed on this poster was really through a Lippincott post a very long time ago where he did talk about the fact that, you know, he worked on Conan and the promotions and the marketing of Conan, but... It was one of his smaller kind of films in terms of there being not so too much merchandise or material that he could post on his Facebook page because it just wasn't. I mean, again, Star Wars is a monster. For him, Judge Dredd was a monster because he was so and he was a producer involved, so he had so much material. But Conan was one of the smaller ones, and I do remember him putting up a post where it was just like the word Conan used in a font that I was not very familiar with. I don't think it was used in the film, but it was kind of for the production and then. And that font kind of sent me out to a, a different area where it was like, wait a minute, that font looks familiar to these other posters. What are these posters? It's like, well, these posters look nothing like Schwarzenegger. It looks nothing like him, but it does say Dino De Laurentiis on it. So wait a minute, what, what's going on here? And then, you know, I, I started to find out that, yeah, they actually did hire Frenzetta to put out the teaser poster, the, the preview poster. But unfortunately, he never continued with the film you know to provide all the art for this film but obviously when you listen to some of these interviews and documentaries especially from Milius, you find out how influential the style was uh, i believe in one of the quotes he he says that uh, there were certain scenes that could have been ripped right out of a frenzetta painting the orgy battle scene where conan and his friends attack Tulsa Doom's castle. That whole sequence, the way that everybody is staged, the bad guys, the, the women, the Conan and his friends and everybody, that whole sequence, it, again, it, it, he's absolutely right. It's, it's, it's right out of a painting. So anyway, thank you guys for listening as always, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Reds. Bye-bye, everybody. 
warrior. Thief. Gladiator. Conqueror. Conan. They said you had come. Man of great strength. Give us what we desire. like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2022. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>